Hello, Chase Oaks. Good to see you. Whether it's your first time to be here or you've been here a long time, really glad you are. Those who are online, thanks for being online. And those we uh, tape online or uh, record it so we can edit it um, on Friday night. And there is something, I, mean, I love everybody at Chase Oaks. I love all of our campuses and all the service. I really do. God's doing something unique in each one. But I will say, there is something going on on Friday night. And thanks for being part of it. And uh, so... Uh, today we are continuing, you know, this series, Rebranding Christianity, which is uh, not really what it may sound like. It's, it's not about coming up with a new brand, like the brand we've had for 2,000 years, it ain't working anymore. We've got to come up with something new. It's actually the opposite. It's actually going back and saying, let's go back 2,000 years and recapture the brand as Jesus gave it. Because he gave us the brand, John 13, he said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He was not ambiguous, right? I mean, he's really clear. The brand, this is how you'll be known. This is how you roll as my followers if you love one another the way I've loved you. And that's the kicker, right? It's a Jesus kind of love, uh, over the top kind of love that we should be known for. And we're not known for that in wider culture. And so we've been talking about, well, how do we get back to it? And, and you know, the, the song that we just heard from U2 makes me think about Bono, you know, the lead singer of U2 who helped write this song. It's a great song. And Bono is just one of those guys that he just defines cool. You know, he didn't have to act cool because it just, it, whatever he does, it's cool. And like he wears sunglasses all the time, uh, inside and outside. And I'm going to try it just because it'd be fun to be cool just for a few minutes, you know, and and I uh, just looking a little more cool. Thank you. And so so, you know, um, Bono is an interesting guy because you may not realize this, but he's a Jesus follower, a little rough around the edges, but he's a Jesus follower. And I, a few months ago, I read actually listened to an audible book, uh, his autobiography. And I was so proud of him, not that he cares that I'm proud of him, but I was because he represented Jesus so well. And as he talked about his Christianity, as he talked about Jesus, he was authentic. He was open about his own failings and the failings of, of Christianity and all of that. But he represented Jesus in his authentic journey so well that I, I remember when finishing the book and thinking, man, anybody. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus who've listened to that book or have read that book. And I thought, man, anybody who's done that is going to be much more open to Jesus than, when, than before they encountered it. And that's what we're talking about. Like, wouldn't it be great if the way we lived in culture is, is the same way? That because people bumped into you, because people came here, because people bumped into us, they were much closer to Jesus or open to Jesus than when they started. And so today we're going to be talking about how to do that because I can only be cool so long, so I'm going to put that up. But... Um, because as we've said, we're, we're not known for what Jesus said to be known for. And last week we talked about why. So last week, you know, the first week we talked about the brand. Last week we talked about mission drift, how we've drifted from that brand. And today we're going to take a happy turn positive. And this week and next week we're going to be looking at what the New Testament says about how to live in culture in a compelling, endearing, engaging way. And there's a lot at stake to get this right. 
Because when you look at like statistics and polls and all that of uh, every, every generation, but certainly emerging generation having not so great a perspective of Christianity, a negative view and walking away or being repulsed. Understand that's, that's not just numbers. Those are people. And for many of us, those are people that we love and people that we know and we're praying for. And for God, it's deeply personal because he cares deeply about every one of those people. That's why he came. And so let's take a turn just to say, okay, what does it look like to live in culture the way he calls us to live? And the good news, you know, I wrote this you know, book and, and the second half is all about this part of, okay, how do we engage culture? Is I didn't have to make anything up. I just plagiarized God uh, because in the New Testament, uh, he tells us what to do. Jesus and the apostles uh, later talking to the churches talk a lot about how to engage culture in a compelling way. And from that, there's like five strategies that you can pull from that that are really clear. And we don't have time in this series to do all five, but we're going to do two. Me this week, Ryan next week to say, OK, let's let's pick these two. To say, man, what if we did this? And actually, the one we're talking about today, which is Jesus's strategy for convincing the world that he indeed is God who came to this world and loves them more than they can understand. We'll see that if this is the only thing that we did. We would win over our world. We would win over skeptical people who are turning the other way. And you think, well, how do you know that? Because it's Jesus's strategy. And he's got good ideas. It's an occupational hazard when you're Jesus, when you're God. And and this is the one he stakes everything on. Like now there's other stuff in the New Testament that's really important. But he's going to say this is the one thing. Like if if this happens, then a watching world has every opportunity to understand who he is and why he came. And if we only get this one thing right, especially in our world right now, as we'll see, it'd be massive. And so let's look at what it is. It's in a very dramatic moment in Jesus's life where he uh, goes off by himself. He's praying. This isn't in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you are a Bible person and know about that, this is before that. And he prays. And as we're going to see, this is in John 17. He prays for you and me. And this is how he starts the prayer in this section of the prayer, which at first sounds kind of different because he says, My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. Which seems kind of weird, right? He's saying, okay, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for people who belong to us, meaning those who know God. You say Christians like that's who I'm praying for. I'm not praying for the world, which makes it seem like I don't care about the world. I just care about Christians. Of course, we know that's not the deal, right? I mean, if you have any doubts, all you got to do is remember Tim Tebow. And every time he played football, he always had the stuff underneath with John 316 was his most common one. Right. And and some of, you know, John 316, what's it say for. See, you paid attention in Sunday school, you get a little star. That's great for God. So loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son. Right. God loves the world. That's why Jesus came into the world. He, I mean, Jesus came to this planet to reach the world of people who don't know him. And he launched the church with this movement of people with a message of how he wants to reach the world. We're called to go into the world with that message and reach the world. So, yes, Jesus cares deeply about the world. It's the whole point. 
He cares so much about the world that instead of praying for the world, he prays for Christians. He prays for us. Because he wants to reach the world strategically. He's praying for us. Well, what does he pray for us? Well, he first prays for the 12 disciples. And then in verse 20, he says this. I'm praying not only for these disciples, the 12, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Guess who that is? Well, it could be you. If you've come to believe in Jesus, it's because of what God has revealed through, about how to do that through the apostles. And, and, and that's what he's saying. So he's praying for you. This is the one, one thing we know that Jesus prayed for you and me 2,000 years ago. And here it is. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, it may be, they may be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, catch this, that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. So he's praying this one thing, because of the world, for believers... One thing he prays for is that we collectively would be one in such a way that remember the purpose statements we just read so that the world will believe that you sent me later so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus's strategy for helping the world understand his love for them and that he came for them is this one prayer that you and I as his church in a polarized world in a world where everybody's tribal, in an us-against-them world, where there'd be this community of people called church, there'd be like the one place on the planet where all that polarization, all that vitriol, all that does not happen. And a bunch of people who should not be together, except for Jesus, are together. And they're not just together, they love each other and are for each other. So much so that a watching world, imagine if that happened now would be like, wow, where else does that happen? And that's his heart. That's his dream for the church. It's not uniformity. The, the dream for the church of Jesus, his dream, his prayer, is not that we would just be like everybody else, where you gather with people who are just like you, and who think just like you, and who look just like you, and who are from the same kind of culture, and same kind of thought patterns, and all that, just like you. Sameness. That's comfortable. That's the way people, I mean, just remember the high school cafeteria, right? You had the jocks and the, these people and those people and the smart people and the, all right. And as adults, we do that. But that's not what Jesus is praying for. That's not remarkable. That's not what he's wanting to do. Uh, my friend of mine wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees, which is a great book to read. Um, his name's Larry. And um, here's what he said. He said, uniformity is not what Jesus died for. He did not come to break down the dividing walls that separated Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, women and men, so that we could coalesce around a boring, blended, homogenous middle. Quite the contrary. He came to save us in our differences, not from them. God delights in our diversity. Many of our greatest differences are an essential part of God's sovereign plan. He actually made us that way on purpose. Meaning the glory of the church... The thing that he's praying for is not just for a bunch of, for churches to gather around sameness, but to actually 
with all of our differences to remember that there's one thing that we unify around, Jesus. And everything else, like all the things that divide us out in the world, they just don't divide us in here. And our differences actually make us better. And we appreciate each other's differences. And, and that just doesn't, that's, that's hard to find in the world. We talked about this in the first week, how in the first century, it's one of the reasons that Christianity took off. Because it really was the first, and this is in history. It was the first, the church was the first diverse community that was unified around something bigger. Which is weird, right? Because that's such a common thing, like in our world, it's like, well... That's just, everybody would want that. Like, that would be normal. And it's because we've been influenced by Christianity. But in the Roman Empire, and all the way leading up to empire, but in the Roman Empire, we talked about this in the first week. And I know you remember everything I say, so it'll, but let me just refresh you in case you don't. In that first week, um, how Christianity in the Roman Empire was so unique as a community because the Roman Empire in Roman culture was more polarized, more stratified than even we are. Rich and poor did not mix. Slave and free did not mix. Citizen and non-citizen, this race and that race did not mix. Uh, women were considered not at all equal with men, not even close. So there was just, there was, there was all this enmity between people. There was no, and Christianity was the first community where all those differences came together around something bigger and they preferred one another and loved one another. It created something that Jesus prayed for, right? That this diverse unity. Paul talked about that in Galatians 3. He said, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who've been united with Christ in baptism, meaning as we've come to know Jesus, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that there aren't differences, but those differences don't divide us. We are different, but we're one. That, that's what Jesus prayed for in the, in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, as, as the Father, God, Father, as you and me are one, may they be one. Jesus is different from the Father. The Father is distinct from Jesus, and yet they're one. And that's what he calls us to be. That our differences don't divide us. They enrich us. I don't know who said this quote, so... I'm just going to quote them as somebody awesome. And if you know who did, let me know, because uh, I can't remember. Um, but I love this quote. Differences and disagreements are inevitable. Division is a choice. Think about that in our culture right now. Differences and disagreements are inevitable. Division is a choice. And unity is a choice, too. Uh, we live in a culture that's choosing division. But in the church, we're called to choose unity. Not because we're the same. That's not anything remarkable. It's because we're different and we learn to appreciate each other's differences and actually realize that we need each other because they're different. Because they have a different perspective. They have a different opinion. They have a different point of view. Yes, there's, we unite around Jesus and who we, who we believe he is and who he came to be. Like That's important what unites us. But let's remember Everything else shouldn't divide us. In fact, we actually appreciate those things and learn from them. We need them. Um, I got a lesson in that a few, a uh, couple of months ago. I was just how we need people who disagree with us. And, and, and I, 
I was driving down the road listening to a podcast and it's a podcast I really like the host and he brings on great guests and all that. So it's like, oh, good. There's a new episode. So I, you know, punched the podcast thing on my car and the guest came up. And when the guest came up, I rolled my eyes because it was somebody that I just, I don't know how to say it. I just, I don't really like him. Um, and I've met him and I, he's a pastor. He's an author. He's, you know, God's using him, but he just rubs me the wrong way. His tone, his approach is just so not me that it's just like, ugh. really, I mean, I was just like, and I was like, and I don't want to hear this guy. I, I, and so I was, I was going to, I was just, I was, my finger was on its way to push where I could get to the ticket and listen to the ticket. And yes, I'm a P1, by the way. But, um, but before I could get there, um, I just sensed God whisper to me, hey, why don't you listen to him? And so I did. It's like, I'm going to listen. I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to listen. And so I listened to the whole episode. It was one of the best interviews I've ever heard. It's incredible. All of it. I hate to admit it, but it was really good. One of the best quotes of the year that I got out of that came, uh, came from him. Uh, and, and he is a pastor of a church in a very politically charged part of our country. And in his area, 50% Democrat, 50% Republican. We talked last week about, hey, we don't politicize the church. We don't take sides, right? We, I mean, it's great for you to have an opinion and all that. And you should and vote, whatever you want to do. But as, a, as we don't politicize the church. But he's there trying to... And so the question was, I mean, how do you lead with unity in your community that is so divided and such a divided thing? And here's his quote. So good. He said, what does not unite us should never be allowed to divide us. And I'm not going to tell you his name because I've already told you I don't like him. You know, and, and I do kind of like him now. But so we'll just call him somebody else. Awesome. That rubs me the wrong way. Is that OK? But um, but think about that quote. What does not unite us should never be allowed to divide us. That is profound. Because what unites us, what unites us is Jesus and our belief in him and our decision to, hey, let's help each other follow him. And there are some beliefs that do unite us. But everything else, like if what does not unite us should never be allowed to divide us. Our opinions about this or that or Different backgrounds, all that kind of stuff should not divide us. Like we talked about last week, even what we view about our, our have views about politics. Go for it. But that should never divide the church. Right. What does not unite us should never be allowed to divide us. And in fact, if we're humble enough and we love like Jesus said we're to love, we'll actually learn to appreciate each other's differences and learn from each other rather than react to each other. And in a polarized world, imagine modeling that. Now, to that end, um, you know, I wrote this uh, the book. I wrote, it says, Jeff Jones with Mike Hogan and Dwight Jusen. Uh, because Mike Hogan and Dwight Jusen contributed. Mike wrote the case studies. And so much of the book, I was talking through this other guy named uh, Dwight Jusen, who's a branding guru expert, that um, I had to put him on the front of the book. Well, Dwight, I got to know over 20 years ago. And over 20 years ago, I really had a lot of things figured out. Um, and, uh, when I, and when I met him, he threw me for a loop. And, and I'm talking about, because we're very different, 
when it comes to our political views, our, our state, right? And, and probably I'm different from you and you're different from me, right? But we're different. So just, I, I never say it because it's irrelevant. And then, but I'm going to so I'm, you would call me kind of middle right. Um, you would probably call him middle leaning, little left of middle progressive. So we just see things differently. Some of you are progressive. Some of you, I love you. I think you're great. Okay. I'm not, that's not the point. So, um, but we're just different. And so, but 20 years ago, 20, well, 24 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say what I just said because 20 something years ago, I had it so figured out that I just assumed that people who are over there are over there because they're just not very smart because if they were smart, they wouldn't think that. And the problem with Dwight is he's really smart. He's like this, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I've been able to meet a lot of really smart people. So that threw me. And then I went to, well, okay, maybe he's smart, but he's not very biblically astute. And then as I got to know him, I realized, oh, actually he is. He has a theology degree. He's more well-read in theology than I am. And I'm fairly well-read. And he's a really, I mean, he's actually a really solid thinker. It just comes at things a different direction and emphasizes some different things that are biblical concerns too. Then maybe I would emphasize. So it just as we got to know each other, realized, oh, I actually need this interaction. And I'm thankful for it. I mean, we still have, we still have disagreements about different, I mean, you know, we're, it's still at somewhat different places, but we have a lot more common ground. And I'm much more nuanced and much more well-rounded than if I had just stayed in my little tribe and stereotyped him, which is what we do in a polarized world. And I appreciate one of the commitments that he taught me 20-something years ago is in the realm of politics, because he actually ran political campaigns and all that that you'd be aware of. And he said um, his commitment is this, that he, will, he wants to listen to his people who disagree with him, listen, until he can answer the question, how are they right? And until he can answer that question, how are they right? He knows he really hasn't listened. He's just reacting. And he says, sometimes you have to, it takes a while to get to how are they right? But you can always find, if you listen enough, and that's just, that's just love. Love is humble. It, it's what James talked about. In uh, James 1.19, it says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Out in culture, we should be the quickest to listen, the slowest to speak, and the slowest to react in anger. On Facebook, we should be the slowest to post, the quickest to read and the slowest to respond with his anger. Right? Because we're called to be the best listeners in the world. Because that's what love does. Love is humble. Love says, hey, I need you because you're different. I need you because you have a different point of view. I'm going to listen to you. And I have a point of view. I'll, I'll share it. But I'm going to do that with humility and grace and gentleness. Because when we don't do that, as I said, all we do is stereotype the other instead of listen to the other. And we just keep the polarization going and never build a bridge of understanding and unity. Um, and it's just so natural to do. Like I, I thought about this as I was uh, the other day as I was preparing. 
Um, I remember this conversation I had. This was a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I'm from Alabama. Have I ever said that? <laughs> if I ever talked about Alabama, I don't, I don't do that enough. And uh, anyway, so I, I, was, this was, I was in Alabama uh, visiting a friend. And this was like a long time ago. But, uh, and, his, and I met his great-grandmother who grew up in Alabama. Very Alabama grandmother, okay? And um, she was like almost nine. She was, well, yeah, she was almost 100. So she was in her 90s. And, you know, we had a great little conversation going. And then she leans forward and she says, I've got a question for you. Yes, ma'am. And she said, I just want to know, are you an Alabama fan or are you an Auburn fan? <laughs> now, in Alabama, that's a big question. Like, you've got to be careful how you answer that question in Alabama, okay? And I didn't know where she was coming from. So I said, well, ma'am, I, I happen to be an Alabama fan. And she lit up and she's like, I knew it. I knew you were an Alabama fan because you're such a nice young man. And, uh, and she said, I've lived almost a hundred years and I've never, not one time in my whole life met an Auburn fan that I consider to be a genuinely nice person. Wow. And I was like, well, I said, you know, it's interesting that it's your experience. I said, I, I happen like, you know, I happen to. Know a number of people who were wonderful. Actually, our executive pastor, Jack Warren, is an Auburn fan. Um, he grew up in Alabama, too, just on the other side, I guess, of that debate. And, uh, and I, I, you know, and she said, well, that's interesting because I really I've never my whole life. I've never. Right. And what is that? It's just a stereotype. Right. I mean, she's surrounded by these people that are wonderful people, right? And she just can't see it that way because she relates to them as a stereotype, not as people. And in a polarized world, that's what we do. And Jesus calls us to love like he loves. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't stereotype people. He built bridges to people, including those who were different from him. I love what Zan Holmes used to say. He would say, uh, Zan Holmes used to speak here. Zan was pastor in Dallas, uh, uh, African-American pastor through the civil rights era that uh, was very uh, influential in Dallas. And I, and I appreciate what he would, he, he said to, this to me quite often, that all a, all a bridge is, is a wall turned sideways. He said, every time there's a wall, just ask God to help you know how to turn it sideways, build a bridge. That's what he calls us to do. That's, that's what leads to unity and understanding. And like, let's think about that when it comes to race. Like, like I really believe that the church should be not just difference of opinion, but also difference in cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and socioeconomics, right? To be this place of diverse unity that pictures what heaven will be like, every tongue, tribe, nation, all that, that we should be a preview of the coming attraction. We should be remarkable that way. And, uh, and as a church, that's something we pray about all the time and that we work toward all the time. In fact, I was really um, happy when we did the survey uh, just a little bit ago. That we've grown about 10% in diversity, meaning the last time we took that survey, which was right before COVID, was we were like 70-30, 70 majority culture, 30% not. And now we're more like 60-40, which is pretty cool. We've still got ways to go. I'm not saying, oh, we're great. You know, and we're not ready to write books on multi-ethnic church. (laughs) We're reading them. But... Uh, but still, right? It's just, we're learning and we're intentional about it and we're growing and it makes us better when we do that. And, um, but it's not just about who shows up, right? It's, it's about us being willing to cross maybe sameness 
to listen to each other and build relationships with one another, which builds bridges and, and destroys stereotypes. But that takes effort. And I remember a few years ago uh, when the, in, in COVID and the racial stuff uh, got, I mean, it's always there, right? And it, but it erupted. And we partnered with another church in town, one community, to say, hey, let's, you know, let's respond as a, a whole church in, in Collin County. And we rallied other churches. But one of the things, and many of you participated in that, uh, was Unity Table. And Unity Table is just a simple idea of just, hey, let's just get together several times over a meal with people who don't look like you, with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, and just listen. And just everybody share their story. We're not trying to... Teach each other what, just, just share your story. Just get to know each other as people, not as stereotypes. Just listen. It was amazing what happened. We need to keep doing this. But it was really, it was really interesting though, because there was one group and, uh, and I heard from three people in that group. Two of them were just blown away by it. And they said, man, I just had no idea. This was so helpful for me as I heard people's stories to understand why they would you know, have this response or why they would feel this way or why, like once you hear their stories, you're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like I didn't understand it until I had friendships, right? And, and that's what, and, and so that was two of the three. Then the third guy met with me after the other two that told me it was like the most significant thing they've ever done. It was, you know, all this third guy meets with me and he's upset about it. He's leaving the church. Like, okay. And there's a couple other things he's upset about too, but um, but this was like the last straw. I was like, okay, what what's what's up? And he said, uh, well, you know, I did this unity table. And I knew he was in the same group. I did this unity table thing, and I was there, and it was the worst experience I've ever had. I was like, really? That's interesting. I said, what was so terrible about it? He said, nobody listened to me. He said I had my point of view, and nobody wanted to hear it. And, uh, and it was a waste of time. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Right? And all he had to do was listen. But when we want to speak more than we want to listen, then we're just never going to get anywhere. And so let's be people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to react in anger and cross bridges. And what we're talking about takes effort because what is natural is sameness. We're most comfortable with people who are just alike. I'm more comfortable watching a football game with Alabama fans than Auburn fans. You know, right? But and it's easy, right? And, and, and more serious stuff, right? To live that way. And Jesus calls us against it. He prayed for something way bigger than that. And so how do we do it? Well, it takes effort. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 4, the kind of unity we're talking about, not sameness unity, but diverse unity. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort, whatever it takes is what he's saying. It's worth it. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's reminding us what we have in common. What doesn't unite us should never be allowed to divide us. Let's remember what unites us. And fight for unity and not let other things divide us. And we, but we just got to keep fighting for it. Keep fighting for it. Keep fighting for it. 
It's so important that elsewhere, Paul, in the book of Titus, which was written uh, on the island of Crete, uh, these churches on the island of Crete, they weren't getting along because there were some Christians there that were all fired up about their opinions about something that is not one of those things that unite us and should never be allowed to divide us. But for them, it was really important. It was a really big deal. And Paul is like, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal to them, but it's, he says it's foolish and, uh, and, and divisive and it shouldn't be happening. And then this is what he says. This is how strong he is. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. Talk about in the church. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are, they are self-condemned. Other than that, pretty awesome. But I mean, look at that. People are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. People are good religious people who are causing division in the church. And Paul says, if warn them once, because, hey, it's going to happen. We're going to mess up. Warn them twice, because this gets a little tricky. But third time, unity of the church is so important. Kick them out. Like, what? Kick them out of church? There's one other time we're told to kick them out. If you're a Bible person, it's not Matthew 18. That's another sermon. But it is 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, the other thing that, where Paul says, yeah, kick this person out for a while until he you know, comes around to his senses, is incest. And there, that's a rebranding Christianity thing because he says, hey, look, even Romans, as promiscuous as they are, they're looking at you guys in the church who are tolerating incest and be like, you guys are messed up. Like, y'all, you, you guys are sick. And Paul's like, if Romans are saying you're sick, like, there's a problem. Like, you can't, incest, we don't do that. Like, you can't do that. You can't, and out of love for this person, like, you can't let that happen. And so, so think about it. There's two things. We're told to kick incest and division in the church. When people think their opinion about things that don't unite us or whatever, allowed, you got to, if, if they just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, you got to kick them out because the unity of the church is too important. Why is it that important? Because Jesus stakes everything on it. He says, God, this is the one thing I pray. For those who come to believe that they would be one, just as you and I are one, so that the world will know that you sent me and so that you will know that I love them the same way you've loved me. The way a watching world will know that Jesus is God who came to the world and who loves them more than they can imagine is diverse unity in the church. And in essence, God, Jesus is giving our world every right if that's not what they see in church, if they see us as divided as everybody else, as polarized as everybody else, it, it, they have, it's like he gives them a ride to say, you know what, that's not real. No thanks. But think about it the other way. Imagine in our world right now that is so polarized and everybody's so tired of being polarized. Everybody I talked to, there's nobody who said, you know, I really like how divided everything is. It's kind of fun. I... I mean, maybe at one point it was like that, but I don't talk to anybody that way. It, now, it is interesting. People will say, oh, the world is so polarized. And guess who's the problem? The other side, right? It's always the other side. If they would just agree with me, if they were just smart, if they would write whatever. So we're not going to solve this on our own. That's why we need Jesus. And that's why this whole prayer, right? It's, this is something God does that is supernatural. That's why it's remarkable. And imagine in a polarized world, if, if people would, would say something like this. Wow, you know what? Where else does this happen? I mean, it doesn't happen anywhere, but have you ever been to a church? Like those Christians, wow. I 
don't know how they figured it out, but they figured it out. I mean, they love one another. Even in their differences, they honor each other. They listen to each other. They prefer one another. It's amazing to see. Like, like where there'd be TED Talks, just where they would beg us to come and talk about how to be unified in a polarized world. It would be say, you know, without Jesus, it could be really hard, but that's what God does in church. That'd be pretty cool. And that's what Jesus prayed for, that, that kind of, that's exactly what would happen. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means it's, it's on us, right, to get this right collectively. And, and I know you want that. We all want that. That's why we're part of a church like this. Um, and, and some of you may be a little bit, you know, because we are a diverse church in all kinds of ways, as we've been talking about. And, and sometimes people are like, I don't know if I'm comfortable in, you know, cause in a diverse church because I kind of like... You know, maybe I, I don't know if this is a place I should be or not because it's just kind of uncomfortable. And let me tell you, if that's what you're feeling, this is exactly the kind of place you need to be. Because you need to be uncomfortable. Because that's where you'll find Jesus. That's where you'll find growth. That's where you'll find transformation. Jesus didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to become like Jesus. And that's going to happen. It's one of the things that happen, not just the optics of a diverse church, but that's how we become the kind of people that Jesus wants us to become. So here's two things I'm going to ask us to do just to bring this down. One is, I want you to think about the direction of your relational life right now. So is the direction of your relational life, if this is, let's say right here is differentness, and right here is sameness, are you moving forward to differentness? Is your relational world moving toward the other or toward the same. Make sense? And if it's moving toward the other in love, to build bridges, to listen, to, then just keep going. But if it's moving toward the same, change direction. And say, what would it look like? I mean, and this is a, I mean, this is a great church to be part of in order to do that, in order to move toward the other. But that's true in your neighborhood and your work or wherever. Is, is to move toward diversity, not toward sameness. Diverse unity is what Jesus prayed for, not uniformity. And the other thing is this. And, you know, Paul begged the Ephesian church and I would beg us and beg myself to make every effort. To protect the unity of the church. Because Satan is always, we know this, Satan is always trying to divide us. He's always trying to get a foothold. He's always trying to pull us apart. And he's good at it. He's been doing this for a long time. And therefore, when if you find yourself more concerned about your opinion than the unity of the church, you just say, God, I, help me here. I don't want to be, I, don't, I, don't, I do not want to disunify what you're unifying. I don't want to play. I don't want to score points for the wrong team. I used to coach hockey. And I remember one time we had a player that got disoriented. And he turned around and made a goal against our goalie. And he was like, yeah, you know, he's all excited. And the team was like, what did you just do? You just scored a goal for the other team. He's like, oh, no. And our goalie was like, dude, really? We don't want to score points for the wrong team. And so let's help each other do that. And hey, there are some things that unify us, right? I mean, it's okay to have some concerns and even some big, hey, if it's about Jesus and what we believe about him, okay, if there's something going on there, let's, let's talk about that. 
But everything else, what does not unite us, should never be allowed to divide us. And let's not allow it to happen. And God will help us do what he calls us to do, and that is move toward unity. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us pray. We're also going to do something together after that prayer uh, to take a unity step. Um, but I want to go back to Jesus' prayer and us all commit to be the answer to that prayer. To be Jesus' dream as a church, not nightmare as a church. And I believe you're doing that, okay? And, but let's just keep taking steps that direction. And so let's bow our heads together and talk to him. This was Jesus' prayer. Lord, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, help us be the answer to that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.